0: I could probably get each of you up here and we could spend the morning you just telling the story to each other, right? I think you know, anyone, most of us know it well enough to be able to tell it to each other. Um, coincidentally, this past week, the Jewish community celebrated Purim, which is the Feast of Esther, really, uh, they, where they tell the story of Esther, and they dress up in costumes and the kids boo every time Haman's name is said and cheer every time Mordecai's name is said. And those are, they have these noise makers to try and drown out the name of Mordecai. Uh, not Mordecai, of Haman. And uh, it, it sounds like a riot. I've never, never participated, but uh, from everything I've read, it is the most fun feast or festival You know that uh, the... Uh, Jewish community celebrates. Um, Others are more significant, perhaps, like Passover uh, or Hanukkah, but they're not more fun than Purim. So uh, that was just, I think, Wednesday, Thursday of this past week. So um, we're going to be talking about her, or with her, sort of. And uh, we'll start today, though, with our other woman of God. And most of us have probably never heard of her. Like Miriam and Deborah, who we discussed several weeks ago, this woman is also a prophet. And uh, we're going to find her story in 2 Kings chapter 22. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11. And uh, we'll see if we can get this up on the screen if you need that. And uh, we'll see if I can remember to click at the correct time. (coughs) So this is um, Josiah is king. He was made king at the age of eight. And he's been doing some repairs on the temple and has just discovered a book of the law. So we pick up in verse 11 of 2 Kings 22. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Achbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim, Akbor, Shaphan, and Esaiah, went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, the son of Hahas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem. In the new quarter, she said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and with its people, according to everything written in the book, uh, the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made. My anger will burn against them, uh, against this place, and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. So this is... I mean, it's sort of a longer reading, maybe, than we, we usually include in the sermon, but it's uh, a fairly short account. It's the only mention. There's a parallel account in 2 Chronicles. Um, so we have 2 uh, Kings and 2 Chronicles tell the same, basically, the same stories from different perspectives. And uh, you can uh, check that out. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, if you're interested. Uh, but. but There's only two mentions of Huldah in the entire Bible, and uh, this, this is one of them. But there are still a few things that we can know about her based on what the information that we're given. The first thing is that she ministers at a very important moment in Israel's history. The northern kingdom has already been taken into captivity. It's been taken uh, by the Assyrians. Um, There have been people from other nations that have come and been resettled in the northern kingdom. And uh, we have the southern kingdom of Judah is still standing. Jerusalem is still standing. Um, I'm not sure. It's about 70 or so years later. Uh, that these events are are taking place after that destruction of the northern kingdom. Um, And then, so so it's an important moment because Jerusalem is staring down the barrel of also going into captivity. And they've had a series of wicked kings, ungodly kings, and now the child Josiah as I mentioned, took the throne at the age of eight. Now, 18 years into his reign, uh, so at about, what's that make it? All you math majors out there, what, 26? At the age of, ripe old age of 26. He does this restoration project, a repair project on the temple, and they discover this book of the law. So, we, whatever our picture of Israel, Judah, the temple is, It has to include the fact that for centuries, perhaps, they just lost the books of the law. You flip in your Bible to Genesis to Deuteronomy, boom, you've got it. For them, they lost it. And then they found it. And they read it. But they don't know if it's genuine. They don't know if it's the real thing. Like the stuff they're reading is pretty startling. But surely if it was this important, they would have found it or would have kept it, would have known about it the whole time. So this is um, a a big moment in the history of Israel. Can they stave off whatever uh, disaster is coming in terms of judgment? Because when they read it, and it's probably Deuteronomy that they find And as they read Deuteronomy, there are judgments that come for not keeping the covenant with God. And so you know, as they read it, they know they've not been keeping the covenant with God. The first thing that they do is they, in chapter 23, if you keep reading, is that they renew the covenant. And then they have a a Passover. I don't know if that's here in Kings and Chronicles. They have a Passover. I don't know if they've been having the Passover every year. And so they had to put things right. But before they get into all that, they say, we better make sure that the book we have is accurate. We don't want to be, you know, changing everything based on a fairy tale or a fiction. And so, Josiah gives this task to some of his advisors. It says in uh, verse... Thirteen, He tells them, he says, Go and inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, about what is written in this book that has been found. Go find someone that can tell us about this book. Now, while most of our reading from about... uh, Verse 15 through the end of the chapter focuses on the prophecy or the words of Holder. I want to just highlight the men that Josiah sends. You see, he doesn't just send a messenger boy, right? He doesn't just send a courier. You know, put this book in a box and ship it off to the prophet, get them to authenticate it, put a stamp on the, you know, and a signature on the outside and FedEx, FedEx it back to me. Okay? No, he says, I want you guys to take this book. And he sends Hilkiah, the high priest. He would have been the highest spiritual leader in the country, certainly in the city of Jerusalem. Okay. Overseeing, no doubt, the repairs of the temple. He sends Ahikam, son of Shaphan. That doesn't mean anything to us, really. I don't expect. But Shaphan, uh, the family, is important in Judah. Um, And Ahikam, his son, later becomes governor of Judah. Uh, The third guy is listed there. Uh, These are in verse... uh, Where is it? Verse 14. Uh, They're all listed. Uh, Abdon, we don't know anything about him. The fourth one is Shaphan, the secretary. Uh, So it was his son that was listed earlier. But saying he's the secretary doesn't mean he's the receptionist. It means he's more like the secretary of state, uh, the chief of staff for the king. And then he also sends the king's Messiah, the king's attendant. So he's gathered the cream of the crop, the heads of the court, his court, not the judicial court, but the heads of his court, the head of the temple, and he says, take this book and go see the prophet and verify its authenticity and its message. And so, these men head off and they go to the house of Holder. Um, and then she, we're given this long introduction to Holder, um, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Hahas, keeper of the wardrobe. So, uh... Uh, Probably he was a a priest and uh, sort of kept the priestly garments would have been his responsibility there. So, she then gives them the message from God. And she's able to do several things for these men. The first is, she declares that it's scripture. This is authentic. This is the words that God gave to Moses. This is the law that Israel is to be following. She then interprets it. And she looks at it and she reads it. I don't know if she reads it, if she was familiar with it, if she's just telling a message that she heard from God. But she's able to say, because we've found this and we understand this, judgment is coming. There's, There's no, this is going to happen. But she doesn't just interpret it, she applies it. And she says, you have the opportunity. And she says, Josiah, because you were repentant when you heard this, then you're not going to be witness to the destruction and punishment and judgment of Jerusalem. And and I I do believe that there's an implication there that anyone else like him, and even Jerusalem itself, as long as they repented and were... uh, you are know, faithful to God, then that judgment was, that can was kicked down the road. Because God wasn't going to punish faithful people. But the judgments that are listed there in the book would come to pass as long as they continued in this path of ungodliness and of idol worship. So, Holder's Prophecy Becomes the centerpiece of Israel, of Judah's reform movement. Josiah reads the book, he is devastated by it, recognizes their shortcomings, goes to Holder. Holder says, yes, you're you're correct, Josiah. This This is problematic. God's not happy with how things have been going. And because of her message, because she's able to verify it and forecast what's going to happen unless changes are made guy says, we need to make big changes. And he goes out and he um, cleans up some of the, the shrines to idols. He knocks down and removes idols. Uh, he does so not just in Judah, but uh, I know I, I read at least in Chronicles passage, he goes up into Ephraim, into the northern kingdom, and removes idols and shrines from up there as well. And, and so Holder has given motivation to what becomes a reform movement to give the city of Judah, uh, city of Jerusalem and the uh, region of Judah new life. So as we sit on the bench with, uh, with Holder, um, I have some questions for her. And maybe you do too. And, and what I want to do is, unfortunately Holder's not able to respond, but uh, I want to just share the questions that I have for her that pop up in my mind. My first question is, Holder, when did you become a prophet? When did it become apparent that God was speaking through you? Did you have a vision where God called you like he called Isaiah? Or was it more subtle as you spoke wisdom into the lives of other people and they pointed out to you, they recognized that God was speaking through you? What was that like? My second question for you, Holder. It seems that you were well known to Josiah's royal court. He didn't tell his men to go and find you. He just said, go find out what God says. And boom, they went to you. So I'm wondering, had you spoken to Josiah on God's behalf often? Were you a familiar face representing God in the court? So that when they had a question, where they wanted God's answer, they knew where to go. Or was this a surprise for you that they came and showed up at your doorstep? I'm also curious, Holder, if being a woman posed extra challenges for you being a prophet. What was that like for you? Were you well received? Did... Did people tend to dismiss you or did they recognize God in you and speaking through you and and respect you because of his presence in your life? I'm also very curious as a follow-up to that how common it was for God to use women as prophets. All of our written books in the Bible, prophetic books, are written by men. And so we have the impression that God always spoke through men. But is that correct or not, Holder? Were you common or exceptional? That would be interesting to know. Holder, when the five court officials brought you the book of the law, you confirmed its authenticity. You recognized it or or acknowledged it as the words of God, as the law that Moses had received, the law that Israel was going to be held accountable for, for keeping. Were you able to do that because you already knew what was in the law, whether you'd heard it or you'd read it somewhere else and so you, you recognized it? Or did you just receive a message from God letting you know that this was His Word? Uh, how, how did you know what you were looking at on that day? And, and then my last question holder... I think it is, um, is that there were no, it's, There were other prophets at the same time as you. Uh, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, uh, both of whom have books named after them in the Old Testament. And there are probably at least a couple of others around the area. Did you ever all get together for a prophet's luncheon? Did you compare notes? Were you collegial? Uh, did you... You would sit around and complain about the state of the nation, uh, the attitudes of the kings, um, how you could present your messages. Uh, what was what was that like as you interacted with the great prophet Jeremiah and the lesser known Zephaniah? Uh, what sort did you have conversations together? I think that would be interesting to know. Unfortunately can't give you the answers to any of those questions. However, we do know Holder was known and respected as a prophet by the king and his court. She spoke for God, she spoke truth to the king, and she sparked a reform movement in uh, Judah for Yahweh. So, the second woman sitting on the bench is Esther. I've got half a sermon to get through the book of Esther. Um, so she spoke, like Holder, she also spoke to a king. Okay? But in very different circumstances. Esther lived after the destruction of Jerusalem, about a hundred years after the Jerusalem has been destroyed, after Holder's prophecy had been fulfilled. And she lives in Persia. She's a Jew living in Persia. Um, hundreds of miles away. And while Huldah had a reputation for um, being a prophet of God, Esther actually kept her nationality and her relationship with God secret. Um, And so while while Huldah has some respect, some position... As a wife of a, a priestly family, a priestly family, uh, Esther is a refugee orphan who, through a series of events, comes to be married to the king, ungodly king of Persia. So we'll explore Esther's story a lot more in growth groups. That's my get out of jail free card when I'm running late on a sermon. Um, but the upshot of Esther's story is that you know, she comes from rags to riches, right? N- not that she had any choice in it, And I think it's clear, we, we need to just recognize that, that she was taken from her home. She didn't enter a beauty contest. She was taken from her home, placed in the palace, um, at the king's beck and call. He decides that she's going to be his wife. And... Um, And that's where she ends up. After a period of time, uh, there becomes a plot that uh, one of the king's chief advisors wants to commit genocide against the Jews. Wipe them all out uh, from the uh, nation, the kingdom of Persia. And Esther chooses the right moment to reveal her Jewishness. But in doing so, she takes a risk because she doesn't know how the king is going to respond when he discovers her nationality. You see, he could quite easily side with his advisor. He's known his advisor longer than he's known Esther. He's trusted his advisor on things that he would never trust to his wife, who is one of the many women at his disposal. He may well say, well, if my advisor says that Jews need to be killed, then Jews need to be killed. And so Esther is taking a risk when she says to the king, I'm a Jew. And he's trying to kill my king. But things work out and the, the king is receptive to her and he orders Haman, his advisor, to be immediately killed himself. Allows the Jews, signs an edict that the Jews are allowed to fight back when people come to attack them and harm them. And uh, they do, they def- uh, defend themselves and the day becomes a great victory for God's people as they stave off this uh, attempted genocide. That's it in a very small nutshell. <clears throat> but again, I have a list of questions if I was to sit on this bench with Esther that I would like to ask. And, and you might say, Peter, why are you just asking questions? I want to... Uh, today, one of the things I want to try and accomplish is just uh, let you see the value of asking questions when we read a text. Okay? Write them down if you have questions. Because sometimes you may come across things later that answer them. And, and you, you may discover things. Because, but if you don't remember that you ever had that question, you just skim over it and you're left with, without ever learning it. Sometimes we read scripture in a way just to learn what's there. And we learn the information. But if we don't interrogate it, if we don't question it, or or try to get beyond it uh, to, to understand what's going on, I think we'll miss out. So in asking these questions, I think it gives us areas to explore and to learn and to grow. So my question's for Esther. Maybe you have some also. Esther, how Jewish was your upbringing. You a 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem, but we know that Jerusalem started being rebuilt 70 years after its destruction. So your family had opportunities to return and be there with Ezra, Nehemiah, others, and yet chose to remain, or I don't know if you chose, but you stayed in Persia. And, and so, did your fa- was your family still faithful to Yahweh, in Persia, or were they trying to fit into their Persian community, participating in the festivals and maybe even worshipping their gods? What was your childhood home like in relationship to God? Second question, Esther. What was it like in the king's harem? Were you a prisoner? What did it feel like? Did it feel like we often picture you as being in the lap of luxury with attendance at your beck and call and 24-7 beauty treatments? And... But how much freedom did you have? What was that experience like? Esther, I wonder, why did you hide that you were a Jew for so long? Did you sense prejudice against Jews? Did, did you sense that it wasn't wise? Was there you you didn't want to be looked down on as a refugee, as a defeated people? Um, was there a stigma attached to that? What was the purpose in hiding your Jewishness? Now, Esther, I know you didn't write the Book of Esther, uh, but do you have any ideas why it doesn't ever tell us that you prayed to God? Uh, Daniel was also somebody who lived in a palace, worked in a palace in Babylon uh, a few decades before you. And the big thing about Daniel is that he's constantly praying to God. And when we come to your story, we're not ever told that you pray to God. Was that part of your life and the author just... Left that out? I wonder, Esther, how nervous were you when you confronted Haman? How nervous were you? Were were you, like, just on pins and needles, not knowing how this was going to happen? Uh, Were you confident that you knew the king and that you trusted him to do the right thing by you? Or did you have tremendous faith in God that everything was going to be okay? What was that moment like? You. This might be strange for you, Esther, but uh, would it surprise you to know that two and a half thousand years later, we are still celebrating Purim? That that feast that you instituted at the after all these events, that that feast is still being celebrated by your people today. Like, what did you have in mind when that started? Did you think it would? Run for a little while, as long as the kingdom of Persia was still up and running? Did you think they would forget it over time? Well, good for you, you're famous. And lastly, Esther, the author of the book also left out God's name. It doesn't show up anywhere in this book. But did you feel that you were working for God through these events? Did you feel that, that you were just doing your best, that you were doing your best, and that God was you know, pulling strings behind the scenes? Did you sense that as you carried out this plan? Or were you just so busy trying to keep your head above water doing the next, making the next best decision, trusting what seemed like wisdom, that, that you were just completely occupied with the very next task and completing it? What was your attitude and awareness through all of this? Now, again, we don't really get the answers to these questions. But there are a couple of things from the lives of these women that I want us to take away today. That clock up there has stopped working. I think. That means I've got 10 more, 15. Okay. Okay. Uh, there, There are a couple of things that I want us to take away today. Like Holder, through the Holy Spirit, each believer, each person in this room, each person watching online or listening on the podcast, each believer has a responsibility to personally study, apply, and speak God's Word into the lives of those around us. Imagine if it said, hey, here's this book of the law. It says it's the book of the law. Uh, Let's go find someone to authenticate it, to verify it. What if they couldn't find anyone? Well, it looks old, must be right. But they found someone who knew God's word who could whether it be God's Word written or God's Word in their head or in their heart somehow, but they knew God's Word. And because they were familiar with God's Word, they were able to guide the nation into saying, yes, we need to repent. We need to make things right with God. We need to put away the idols, the bowels, and to worship God only. And so it's important for us to know to have knowledge, but, but knowledge is not the end goal. Right? If Holder had it locked her door and said, sorry guys, bad hair day, can't come down. Right? If she said, I can't help you, then her knowledge was of no good. But she put her knowledge into practice, speaking up, even though it was difficult right, to say yes, This nation's a mess. That's not always good news. And then, but then to also have a message of mercy and say, but if you repent because you've repented, then there's hope, there's a path forward towards restoration. And so, like her, if we know God's word, we can speak both words of warning and words pointing people to God. The second takeaway today is that Esther was used by God. Now, unlike Huldah, she'd never heard a direct word from God. She never spoke for God. She never said, thus says the Lord. This is what he wants to have happen. Rather, Esther, a God is hidden in the book of Esther working behind the scenes. But we still see Him, don't we? And, and so we often, I think, look back on our lives and, and we'll see times and moments where God's fingerprints are present. Where we were stressed out of our minds, we were trying just to survive, we were just putting one foot in front of another, we didn't really know that we were making the right decision, we just had to make a decision and, and we did what we could, and we're not quite sure how we got through it. But when we look back, we say, you know, God put that person in my life because I, I didn't expect to see them there at that time. God did this. God did that. I opened my Bible, and there was a verse that I just needed. That God does things in the ordinary parts of our lives as well. And the third thing, and this really applies to both of them, is that the reason God's fingerprints show up in Esther's life, and the reason that Huldah is able to lead a reformation in the nation of Judah, is that they made themselves available to God. Mm-hmm. Esther chose to reveal her Jewishness, and to speak up for her people. Huldah chose to speak to these officials, to, to say a hard word to the nation that they needed to turn themselves around, to, to get rid of their false gods. Um, that wouldn't have been well received. But they made themselves available. And, and in all reality, Holder had made herself available some point in the past, hadn't she? When she first felt a call on her life to be a prophet. And she'd answered that call. Esther didn't just accept a call when Mordecai said, this is the moment. She had a relationship with her people beforehand. And so I wonder, would you, how would you feel about asking this, praying this prayer this week? God, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? Will you make yourself available for God? And, and, you know, when we do that, we're really just following the example of Jesus as the ultimate person who made himself available to God. As the Son of God, he made himself available becoming human and coming to earth. As the man, Jesus, he made himself available at his baptism and said, God, I'm ready for this now. And he he began his ministry. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he made himself available. He said, God, not my will, but yours be done in the moment of his biggest challenge. And so Jesus, in a sense, follows in the footsteps of all those Old Testament people of faith who made themselves available to God. He said, God, what do you want me to do? I'm willing to do it. And if this is your prayer, I don't know if you'll get an answer this week. I don't know if you'll get a knock on the door or run into somebody that you haven't seen for a long time or be convicted by something you hear or read. I do know that God wants each of us to make ourselves available for his service, for him to be our God, and us to be his people. And then we follow in the footsteps of Holder, of Esther, and of Jesus.
1: As it's almost time to, uh, to gather around the Lord's table here, we're going to sing this song to kind of help prepare us. But we're going to sing it a little bit on the slower side. And what I really ask you to do, don't miss the significance of these words. These are powerful words. Join me, please. Jesus, keep me near the cross.
2: I'm sorry, Mark fourteen, twenty-two. As they were eating, as they were eating, as I was working, as I was taking care of my children, as I was going through my life doing what I want to do, Jesus stops and has a purpose for me. As Peter in his prayer was saying, not my will, but your will. As I go through my day and go through my life, is there a time that I can stop? Is there a time I can just slow down and do what God would have me to do? That seems to be the hardest thing. Because as I go through what I want to do, it's the most paramount and important thing possible. More important than Ukraine, the economy, whatever. Because it's what I want to do. But there are people that need help. There, there, there's people I could say a good thing to. To make their day. I can do this. If I just open myself to it. When we commune. And the idea of the communion. Is to stop. Jesus. Is talking. Jesus is presence. Just. Calm down. As you were eating, stop eating. As you were walking, stop walking. Stop talking. Stop running and getting your money. Just slow down. As we pray for the cup and the bread, I want you to just slow down and think about the communion. Father God, we come before you, thanking you and praising you for life, health, and strength ask you to bless this bread, who represents your broken body, and this fruit of the vine, which represents your shedded blood. These and all of us we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: You are my strength when I am weak, you are the treasure that I seek, you are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up I'd be a fool, you are my My shame, rising up, and I bless your name. You are my oh. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my God, You are my